0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for the people in this room, and I thank you, Father, for the encouragement they offer me, and I thank you, Father, for the way in which they reflect your love to one another. And I thank you, Father, that I can be a small part of this, because in the time I have to prepare and to teach for each week, it is uh, the blessing, Father, is to be in in the midst of so many who love you and love your word. And so thank you, Father, that we can all enjoy that time together. And for the continuing... Way in which you guide all of our hearts to be peaceful and loving and, and forgiving. And uh, we ask that to be a never ending work, Father. And through your word, we pray tonight you teach us, among other things, about these very matters, and that you would instruct us into greater righteousness. And I thank you, Father, that I may be the vessel to bring that word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Chapter 19 is where we are. Chapter 19, verse 8. Specifically, Paul shows up in Ephesus, finds a small group of men who were professing a kind of belief, but it was clear to Paul that what they believed wasn't exactly what they needed to believe. He baptizes them after explaining the true gospel, because previously they had only understood the preaching of repentance that came with the baptism of John. After he does this new preaching and baptizing, we saw last week they received the Holy Spirit and with it came all those demonstrative outward signs that the Spirit may do from time to time and particularly in this day and age, in the time of Acts. They spoke in tongues, they prophesied and so on. So these signs were a necessary way that God confirmed that what Paul was delivering was not only distinct from what they had heard in the past, but it was the truth in contrast to what they had heard in the past. The, the thing they heard in the past was not wrong, but it was incomplete. Paul now still ministering in Ephesus where he arrived as his first stop along his third missionary journey. He's still in Ephesus and tonight he will remain in Ephesus for the entire teaching. Verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. Reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient... Speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul now, you notice, goes to the synagogue for the first time. That reminds us that this earlier moment that we just talked about was not really Paul's first effort to evangelize within the city as a whole. This was a preceding moment in which he had met just a small group of men. And if you remember, we ended last week in verse seven where Luke numbers them, he numbers them as 12 men. So it was just a small group that he encountered early. Now we see him beginning ministry in the normal process that Paul followed, as usual, going into the synagogue, starting with the Jewish people. And as well, reasoning, persuading, working with them through their Old Testament scriptures. It's remarkable, though, notice in the text, it's remarkable how long they give him an opportunity to do this. In Ephesus, he's in the synagogue, it says, for three months before things start to go wrong. That's got to be a new record for Paul. And it's a very long time, when you think about it, it's a very long time to preach the gospel each week, not convert, and yet they still want to hear it week after week, some measure, some, some conversation about it. It's probably the case that some were converted along the way. And he stays not until he gets his first convert or two. He stays until they stop listening. And only then when the hardening of the Jewish heart becomes evident, does he then take that as a sign that it is now time for him to turn, that his duty to the Jews has been met, and now he must turn and go to the Gentiles as God expects, because he's waiting for the confirmation in that hardening, in that rejecting, the confirmation that God's work is finished with the Jews in this city, in keeping with what he, what he himself wrote in Romans 11, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. And because it's partial, not entire, in other words, not all Jews, but there will be a remnant, Paul remains until the remnant has been reached and it's clear he's met that end. And in this case, you notice, inevitably, the hardening, in and Luke actually uses that word in verse 9, some were becoming hardened. When that hardening becomes evident, Paul moves on. They show him their hardened heart by speaking evil of the way. And some have described this term, the way, to be Christians or Christianity, but that's not actually true. It's a little off. It's close, but it's off. This is not a reference to the Christian religion, this is a reference to Christ. They're speaking evil of Christ. Remember? He says, I am the way the truth and the light. That is how they came to use the term the way in describing Jesus. So that might be a good note to put in your Bible right above the word way. You might write Jesus. So it's a specific kind of blaspheming. There are many people who we will see and run into who speak unkindly, if not in terms of evil, about Christianity, about Christians, about a denomination, about Christian practices or even Christian beliefs. We can live with all of those things and not find reason to be offended. But when they malign or blaspheme or speak evil about Jesus himself, we have a decision to make. We could do worse, I think, than keeping to the standard Paul himself models in his ministry. When our audience listens, maybe even debates and argues, maybe even speaks poorly of Christianity, we can tolerate that and engage with them on the matter of the gospel. But if our audience makes that turn to speaking evil or blaspheming about the name of Jesus, I would argue out of scripture and Paul's model in particular that we have an obligation at that point to leave that conversation, maybe not permanently. And, and this is not an absolute rule. I don't want to overstate this, but I want us to be aware of what I think scripture models here, which is to participate in a conversation in which the name of our Lord is is being treated that way is, I think, to run up against what Jesus cautioned when he said, do not throw pearl before swine, lest they trample it under. The concept here is in metaphor is very simple. What we have to offer to them is Christ himself as an ambassador of Christ. When their response is to trample under in the mud, so to speak, the very Messiah we are holding out for them, that is the sign, the clearest sign we'll probably get that this is not the time, place, or person for us to evangelize. That's not a permanent condemnation of them or anything of the sort. It's just talk about that moment. To continue to engage, I think, risks becoming party to that in some sense, or at least to enable it. In the analogy that Jesus uses in that reference to throwing pearls, the swine can't trample them if they're not thrown. So if we are in the process of throwing, so to speak, Jesus, at someone who is delighting in trampling under that very thing, we probably are better off throwing nothing. And I think Paul shows that here. He reached the limit when they blasphemed the Lord, and then he left. He lands in a school, we're told, a school of Tyrannus. The name Tyrannus, literally in Greek, is tyrant, which may mean he was the schoolmaster. And as such, made the school available. This is an interesting little practice in Paul's day that the fact that he would land in a school because it mirrors a practice we see even still today that that when men uh, want to bring the gospel to an unreached group, they often begin in buildings of one kind or another that have no direct relationship to the church as we see it today. The church building, in other words, they're simply hospitable and available. And in our day, Sundays are a day in which, or Saturdays for that matter, in which schools are open and empty. So schools are still a very common meeting place for small, even moderate-sized churches that are trying to get started. The practice then of using other facilities in Paul's day was not only common, it was, generally speaking, the only way that the church met in his day. It was only after church and state were combined under Constantine that the idea of a permanent, funded church building came into vogue. Prior to that, Paul and the rest of the church met in whatever facilities might be available, most of the time homes, sometimes in a synagogue, sometimes in other public buildings. You can make a good case that when the church moved into permanent structures, a lot of things started to go wrong, but that's another, another conversation. Interestingly, one early manuscript about, uh, of the book of Acts, an early copy of the book of Acts, adds something at this point in the text. It says that the meetings in, Ty- in the school of Tyrannus was between 11 a.m., and 4 p.m. Some of your Bibles may have that in your Bible. Most of the early manuscripts don't have this edition, but one did. Now, we won't take it as scripture necessarily, but if that edition was accurate, then it tells us something about the dedication of those who followed Paul's teaching during his time in Ephesus, because this period of time, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. was a customary time in Asia, in Ephesus, when all work stopped and the people who were at work would return to their homes and have an afternoon siesta. It's still a practice followed in, in Europe in many cases and other places in the world. It was done out of a practical matter, no air conditioning. So in the heat of the day, you retreated from work and you went into the cool of your home in the and the shadow and the breeze of your home, took a nap, and then you would have another time of work starting in the late afternoon and into the evening. Now, what it means to us that this was the time in which Paul used the day and used the facility to bring people in and teach them is that it shows us how people were willing to sacrifice for discipleship in that day, because while all their old, their countrymen were enjoying the siesta and a break from the heat of the day, Ephesus Christians were leaving their workplace, going to another hot building and spending five hours listening to Paul preach, only to return to work for the rest of the day. It may seem like a small thing to even highlight this point in the text, but It teaches, I think, a general principle for discipleship that remains true till today. And that principle is we don't grow in our faith and we don't grow in our walk with the Lord unless we receive sound teaching somewhere, somehow, and practice what we learn. But studying God's Word as a means to growing in all aspects of our faith takes time. And in my experience, it takes a significant amount of time if we expect to really grow in our understanding of what the Lord has for us. And time has to come from somewhere. Something has to be given up to make time for what you're adding. In Paul's day, it was four hours of good rest in the middle of the day. And I know a lot of people struggle, as I do, to try to find those bits and pieces of time and stitch it all together. But if we really say we want to grow in the Lord, then we have to ask ourselves, what are we willing to give up if we're going to obtain that growth? What do we sacrifice in our schedule? And you could if we're unwilling to give anything up, then we shouldn't be surprised that we never seem to have enough time to pursue spiritual matters, because if we don't make the time, it doesn't magically appear. I remember early on in my marriage, Annette was studying the Bible, and I, I don't even think I was a believer yet. She would study, and, and then I think at some point I started to in, investigate study of the Bible at some level, and, and I couldn't find time for it, and she, she gave me a, a very wise uh, observation. She said, when she put study at the beginning of her day, even on days when she said, it didn't seem like she'd have enough time for everything she already had on her schedule, much less time to study the Bible. Nevertheless, she'd take time in the beginning of her day to study, and then somehow everything else just seemed to get done. But when she made the decision to do everything else first and then find time at the end of her day, it never worked out. Now, whether there's a spiritual principle operating behind the scenes there or not, I'll leave that to your own judgment, but it worked out that way. And I don't think it just comes down to The order of events in the day, I think that's an example of it. But the principles are even broader than that in how you schedule your week or your month of your life. How much of all that we say we want to accomplish in our life needs to really get done at the end of of it all, when we are in our grave, how much of it really needed to be done versus the kind of spiritual growth that can be accomplished through a lifelong dedication to study that does have eternal value, that does go with us. Into, into the kingdom. Our, our spiritual maturity that we gain here follows us into the kingdom. That's the teaching of Scripture. Luke says Paul taught in Ephesus for two more years. And in fact, later in chapter 20, Paul's own testimony is he spent a total of three years in Ephesus, suggesting that he'd already been in the city close to a year by the time we reached this point in the Scriptures. Luke says the effect of all this time was that the Word of God reached all who lived in Asia, both Jew and Greek. Now, what does he mean by that statement? Is he simply speaking in a kind of an exaggerated way to emphasize that Paul's preaching in Ephesus was bold and it it went outward, it influenced Asia? Or does he mean it literally, that somehow Paul's preaching in Ephesus literally impacted the entire region of Asia Minor from where he was in Ephesus? The answer is the latter. Paul's ministry in Ephesus essentially reached the entire inhabited region of Asia Minor from being in Ephesus for three years. In fact, most Christians fail to appreciate just how important Paul's ministry in Ephesus was, how important it was to the spread of the gospel period. You can't overstate how important it was, the work he did in Ephesus for three years. From the work he did just in this one place, teaching in the school of Tyrannus for two years, Listen to what came out of that teaching. We know this from a a collection of reading either out of Acts or the New Testament letters. In spending every four hours every day in this school teaching whoever showed up, Paul was responsible for sending Christians out into Asia Minor and founded every church that we know of in Asia Minor that's recorded in the New Testament. From the students of Tyrannus, you have the churches of Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis specifically named in the New Testament. There's also reason to believe, based on Luke's statement, that the churches of Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia were all started in his days in Ephesus. Additionally, the city hosted not only Paul, but later Timothy and the Apostle John served in ministry to this city. The church in the city received not less than seven of the New Testament letters, including the one that bears its name. Ephesus was also the source of important New Testament writing outward, Paul wrote all three of his letters to Corinth while he was in the city. Remember, only two survive. He traveled from this city at least two times into Corinth while living in Ephesus, and during his time in Ephesus, the church became the largest gathering of Christians in the world in Paul's day. From a city that was literally the center of pagan worship in the world and the center of black magic and sorcery with the temple to Artemis, which dominated the city's culture and commerce. Paul shows up and in three years has the largest concentration of Christians in the world and has brought the gospel to Asia Minor, the center of the inhabited world. It eventually died out, as the book of Revelation describes in the letter written to the church. Jesus removing that lampstand, the symbol of the church, as penalty for them losing their first love. That's a sobering testimony as, as well. Something can start wonderfully and do great work, but if it loses its first love, it ends up in the history books. It's hard to overstate how important the city was. God chose this location to be the center of his biggest explosion of the gospel after Pentecost itself, and he did it with a man working in a school for three years. Now, I mention Pentecost because here we begin to see that second reason why there was this Demonstrative display of the spirit in the early days as Paul arrives in the city, because there is a remarkable parallel between what's going on in this city for the Gentiles and what happened at that earlier time in Jerusalem for the Jews. And I want you to notice some things. We'll build a little bit as we go through the teaching, but let me throw a few of these parallel points out initially. First, notice that Paul's experience in this city began with a gathering of 12 men, And these 12 men had received the baptism of John, but were awaiting the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then back in chapter two, we had 12 men and other disciples, but notably the 12 apostles who had received the baptism of John, but were waiting in the city for the promised coming of the Holy Spirit in the same pattern as you see here. Then the apostle Paul The one appointed to the Gentiles arrives in Ephesus, preaches the gospel. The Holy Spirit arrives, as does the speaking of tongues and all those other signs. Similar to the way the apostle Peter, the apostle to the Jews, preached on the truth of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit arrives for all who believed in that moment. And outward signs followed. And Ephesus, from that moment on, became the center for the Gentile church, sending out many Christians to found new churches all over Asia Minor. Just as in Jerusalem, after Peter's preaching, you had those who were saved at Pentecost, sending outward from the city, particularly after persecution broke out, the city still remaining the center of Jewish church worship among the Jewish Christians, but yet as the home base for a whole wave of evangelism into Judea and Samaria. And the parallels don't stop there. Look at what follows in Acts 19, verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Nothing new here for us in the sense that there's miracles taking place. That's certainly nothing new for anyone who studied Jesus in the Gospels and again for the apostles and the ministry God gave them. And Luke records here how Paul was performing similar miracles in this city. But in this case, the miracles take an extraordinary form, something we haven't seen before. Paul's garments are capable of indirectly delivering God's power for healing. They produce not only healing, but they cast out evil spirits, we're told. Now, notice Luke makes clear from the very beginning of that two-verse segment I just read that the source of all this power is God himself. God is choosing to work through these methods. So there's nothing magical about the, the cloth, of course. None of this stuff is the point. It's that God is working in this way. But yet yeah, we still haven't we have not seen this before in Paul's ministry. There is something novel here, something different. So it suggests God is working in a special way here for some special purpose. Here's another parallel for us, if you haven't seen it already. Do you remember Luke's earlier report in the book of Acts on how people in the city of Jerusalem were responding to Peter's ministry after he had brought the gospel into that city? I'll remind you of something in verse or chapter five of Acts, verse fourteen. Luke says And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out in the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any of them. Remember that? Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. So it became known that if you lined up the sick people on the side of the road at the right time of day with the shadow... You could get healed and it was working. But in the same way that we see it working here, this is nothing magical. This is God choosing to work in this way to affirm the work and the word and the authority of a man who he has appointed to this work. So that the man's ministry would be perceived as one God ordained. And that would obviously embolden him to speak and others to listen. God seems in all of these parallels, God seems to have marked Ephesus for an experience similar to the one he granted Jerusalem at Pentecost and in the days that followed. In a sense, you could make this analogy. Jew is to Gentile, as Peter is to Paul, as Jerusalem is to Ephesus. Not in any doctrinal way. I'm certainly not elevating Ephesus as if it were the Gentile version of Jerusalem or any sort of thing. The city itself doesn't exist anymore except as a ruin. But God's apparently giving the Gentile believers in the church a similar kickstart so that the gospel then would take hold quickly, move out quickly, and reach its intended audience in a very rapid, efficient way. As the Jews were quickly moved into a state of belief in Jerusalem, now you see Ephesus forming the same role, playing the same role for Gentiles in Asia. And if that's right, then it would reinforce our understanding of why there were those early experiences with speaking in tongues, and prophesying as a part of the arrival of the gospel in Ephesus. Again, like we said last week, this does not deny the continuing opportunity God may have to use these kinds of signs when it suits him. But it's still important, I think, to put their mention into a context that understands why God is doing it. Because, as I've said before, it's self-evident he doesn't do it all the time. And if he's not capricious, if everything he does is built on a purpose and he's a God of order then it stands to reason that when it does appear as it does here, we should, have, we should have a way to understand it in some larger sense. And I believe the larger understanding here is God communicating through these signs that something new and true has arrived into a particular world in which there were a lot of competing false messages. And he now cuts through all that noise with the truth. His miracles and wonders being that method to cut through. So the power of God here, makes the point, but it has a side effect, particularly for this culture that is obsessed with the occult. The side effect you'll see here now is yet again another parallel of sorts to what we saw happening back in the earlier time of Peter's ministry. Look at verse 13. But also, some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying... I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. If you're naked and wounded, something really bad has just happened to you. The fact they have no clothes on tells you something about how badly they were beaten. Knocked their socks off, literally. Paul introduces a group of Jews here. Now, notice there's two different groups being described here. They work together in the, in the sense of what Luke is trying to convey. In verse 13, he introduces the first group, a group of Jews who he describes as those who travel from place to place. That reference to traveling Jews is a cultural way. In in Luke's day, this would have been the way in cultural terms of describing gypsies. These are Jewish gypsies, wandering Jews that travel as fortune tellers. This is their way of life. They move around. And of course, the Mecca, of these kind of fortune tellers, (laughs) would have been Ephesus. Ephesus was ground zero for sorcery and the occult. So they're in the city of Ephesus, no surprise there. They're wandering through the city, doing what they do, selling the fortune-telling as their way of life. And they see what Paul's doing. With all the signs and wonders we just described, here's the unfortunate side effect. It captures their attention, and they now try to co-opt what they see. It says here they were Jewish exorcists. The term exorcist in the Greek, the word literally means to cast a spell. We think of it too narrowly today. We think of it simply as like the movie, The Exorcist, casting out the demon. Well, it included that, at least in principle, it was said to include that. But it was a broader sense than that. It was someone who performed magic, cast spells. Today, we think of people in the little storefronts on the main highways that say, I will read your palm, or that's part of what this group would probably be engaged in doing on a regular basis. The reason they moved around was because you stay in any one place too long. If one or two things happens, you get in trouble with the law or the, or the religious authorities, or people discover that you're a fraud. They moved around to avoid that kind of consequence. Practicing sorcery, under the Mosaic law, was a sin and one that was punishable by death. So these are Jews, but not in the true sense, spiritually. And so they're disobedient to the law. They're they're disobedient to their own people. They're probably disowned by anybody, any reputable Jew. Here we see, I think, a parallel to the time of the church centered in Jerusalem. You remember in Acts 8, as the church first starts to move outward from the city, the first place it goes is into Samaria. And the first person that we see coming under the influence of what the Spirit is doing in a negative sense, the first person who misuses it. Remember Simon? And Simon had exactly the same response. Simon's response was, that's something I can incorporate into my own act. And he tries to buy the Holy Spirit. Now again, we have a group of Jewish magicians concluding that Paul's power is a kind of magic that they can imitate, that they can incorporate as a new spell that can be cast. And they do it by trying to repeat Paul's words by using both Paul's name and the name of Jesus in their spells. This is such a classic response of the unbeliever to true faith. What an unbeliever can understand is only the external, because they themselves lack the spirit, the internal awareness and and relationship with God that will put it in its proper context, that gives them a way to relate to it in a true sense. All they know is the external. So when they go to mimic it, the only thing they can do is to mimic the externals. Now, here you see it in the context of the occult, you know, sorcery and the like. But it doesn't have to remain in this context. You can move it into a more general, more acceptable context. For example, there is a true means uh, by which you uh, profess faith and are baptized and practice what you believe. And there are mimicked versions of all of those things which are merely external and have no internal truth. That's how we end up with churches that have, in some cases, unbelievers sitting in the pews and even unbelievers behind the pulpit because all of what you can see about Christianity can be mimicked. The things you can't mimic, though, are the supernatural manifestations that God presents. And so when there is this competing cultural understanding of what religion is, That's when you see, and particularly in the time of Acts, God cutting through with supernatural revelations of himself so that there is a degree of difficulty (laughs) that can't be mimicked. And the truth can be discerned by that difference. Now, in this case, Luke moves from that first group to a more specific group. I think his intent here is to illustrate that it was more widespread than simply a single incident. There was a pattern now of people in the culture, in this occult-crazed culture, mimicking or trying to mimic what they see Paul doing. In one specific case, we see Luke verse 14 mentioning a high priest, a man named Sceva, who has seven sons. Now, the title of high priest, that's interesting because Israel only had, at most, two high priests. And even then, that was an aberration. Typically, though, they would only have one. And the names of the high priests were always recorded in somewhat the same way we would have presidents or chief justices. They're notable. Their their names were known and one had to die or or be disposed before the next one would come along. So to just have some guy wandering around in Ephesus with the title chief priest, that that doesn't make much sense. It's probably the case that he has taken on this title in a self-appointed way. And it may be not related to his practicing of Jewish law in Jerusalem, but it may be associated with some kind of occultic group in Ephesus. He may be the high priest of some cult, but yet be Jewish. It's a sign of how corrupt Judaism had become, particularly in this city. As such, he would have been prevented from associating with the true Jewish priests or anybody of good standing. Now, it says here that they've seen Paul at work. The sons of this man have seen Paul at work, and they come to the same conclusion that the gypsies do, Luke records one incident in which they tried to do this very thing, to cast out a demon. Unsurprisingly, it doesn't work. In fact, the demon answers them, as we're told here. And you see the text, of course, you see the funny exchange that takes place here. Now, the way this would have literally happened is the way we see it happening other places in the Gospels, for example. A demon, as he indwells the human body, to the degree he wishes, takes over that body. I'm not an expert in demonic behavior, but I only go by what I know in Scripture, A demon can be present in the body, but you not know it. The best proof of that is Judas. Judas didn't foam at the mouth. His head didn't spin on top of his shoulders. He didn't break chains and run naked through tombs. He sat at the table and ate with Jesus. But when the time came, Jesus said, go do quickly what you have to do. And he got up and left. So we can be surrounded by human beings who are indwelt by demons and not know it, except when they reveal themselves through the behavior of that person. But then on the other end of the spectrum, we have all of those displays I just talked about given in the scriptures, in, in the Gospels, particularly people who did very unusual things. And in the case where they speak with the demon being the speaker, you still have the person's vocal cords being used. The person is still the host for this spirit being. And so the person is still uh, the one you're hearing. But, you know, by what they're saying and by other mannerisms, perhaps that you're not listening to them, you're listening to what's inside them. And though I haven't had exactly that experience, I know of people who tell me, and I have good, every reason to believe them, that they have seen that. And certainly there's no reason to think that this basic practice would have stopped at some point in the past. Humans are still humans and the demons still exist. Why would they have stopped using bodies when they care to? It, it would, that's actually a harder thing to believe than it is to simply understand and believe they're still out there doing what they do. The demon here says something very interesting. He says, I know... Jesus, and I know Paul, but he uses different Greek words for each person. And some of your Bibles may reflect that in the way that the English may use different words as well. In the Greek, in the case of Jesus, the word for know is gnosko, which in the Greek literally means to know through experience, first-hand knowledge. This demon had personal knowledge of Jesus, which all demons do. (laughs) The demonic realm knew Jesus before we did because they were with Jesus before they fell. So they have first-hand knowledge of who Jesus is. No confusing that. That's how James can say the demons know of God and shudder. There's no mystery there. Then he moves on to speaking about Paul. The demon says he knows again, but this time the word in the Greek changes to epistemi, It's where we get words like epistemology from. It means knowledge of the truth. This is to know something as through understanding something, to be taught something, to have a knowledge of it through understanding, not a knowledge through personal experience. So the demon was personally acquainted with Jesus. He had heard about Paul. He had known about what Paul was doing. Now, before we go into the next step, just think about what that means all by itself. These are sobering realities because any Christian who steps out of ministry like Paul did, and to any extent, should have reason to believe that the demonic realm could say the very same thing about us. They certainly know Jesus, and they may have heard about us. The demon realm may eventually say in knowing about us that they have reason to oppose us personally in some form that realization shouldn't cause us to hesitate in ministry or in serving the lord but it should cause us to at least remain on the lookout for the enemy's schemes just as peter says we should do as that roaring lion who is prowling so first thing to note is our work can be known by the demonic realm and we need to be understanding of that secondly The demon concludes he does not know this group of men. He does not know this group of men. And then, as I said in Texas parlance, he proceeds to whoop them. These men had no power of their own. Their attempts to invoke the name of Jesus and Paul were just useless, empty ritual. So it conveyed no power in the moment. The fact that they were not known by the demon world and the fact that the demon world could take this action against them says that if someone has no power through them or on their behalf, they are completely at the mercy of the demonic realm. And the demonic realm has much greater power than the human realm does, by God's design. So we're left with the impression here that the demon would have reacted differently if he could have said, I know you too. For example, what if this had been Paul, Paul himself, speaking to this man with the demon inside? The demon would have known who he was dealing with, And since we know already, Luke has said, Paul is actively casting out demons all over the place. In fact, just his garments are casting out demons. It's reasonable to assume that the demon here would have never opposed Paul, probably would have done everything he could to avoid Paul. And if forced, he would have been had no choice but to leave the body. That's what would happen if it were Paul. But because these men were unknown to the demons, the demon has no fear. That's evident. He mocks them, no hesitation to attack them. And he has the power to carry out his will. That's the other side of this coin for us Christians. If we step out of ministry, we may become a target because we may become known. But if we don't step out and become known in some sense, then perhaps the demon world has no reason to fear us. It's clear enough these men were unbelievers. That's what left them vulnerable. The question is, as believers, can we reach a similar level of vulnerability to some limited degree because we are not in the fight and the enemy has very little reason to fear us. Now, having said that, we are never without some measure of power, having the Holy Spirit in us, as John himself says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. But can we expect to conjure up the Spirit's power and protection in the moment like a, like a genie when we need him in a time of trial? That's why I think we reach a limit here. The Spirit doesn't respond to our orders or even to our desires. So if we are not practiced in some sense in reliance on the Spirit, in seeking His counsel, walking in His counsel, hearing His counsel, then when we come into contact with the enemy, do we expect the Lord to give us the triumph we want in that moment, or will He allow us to see some of the discipline that comes upon a believer who's not walking in His counsel? Now, He's never going to forsake us. There's limits here. We're talking about chastisement, not destruction. But as we attract attention stepping out of ministry, I believe the Lord delights to show his power through us by defeating those attacks or at least giving us strength to contend with them in some sense. But when we face trials as what I'll call an undercover soldier who has not really made a practice out of disciplining themselves to deal with issues like this and to listen to the Lord and so on, I think we take an even greater risk and we we have the danger that he may let the the demon have some, some room to work if for no other reason but that it might become a chastisement to us. Verse 17. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. So God uses this effort, this event rather, to profit the church in Ephesus. Notice the first result, fear of the Lord. As a result of what happened with the sons of Sceva, fear of the Lord, followed by the name of Jesus being magnified. Furthermore, then many accept Christ and confess their sins. That's the standard expectation. When you think about people today talking about revival, or any kind of movement of God that results in new waves of evangelism, the pattern is always this way. A fear or reverence of God, a return to a life of holiness in response to that fear and reverence, followed then by Jesus being magnified, the name, not not the church itself, but Christ himself, and then a repeating of accepting of Christ and a a new wave of evangelism, a new generation comes into the church. And you can look back in history and some of the famous movements of of the last uh, 200 years even. And you'll see the same pattern over and over again. Now, in this case, in Ephesus, being the city of occultic behavior, you have this repudiation now of the occult itself. And the symbolic act of, of this turning away is the burning of all their magic books. The fact that they had so many of these books shows you how many people were actively practicing sorcery in the church. This is not the way I think we see it today where it seems to stand out from the culture in a very odd way. Think of something more contemporary. Think of some practice or behavior that has become very common in the way people live their lives today, and that became a center of focus in God's ministry, and everyone turned from that thing, whatever that thing is. And uh, let's say, for argument's sake, television is a, a societal evil. I'm not saying it is. I'm not saying it's unbiblical. I'm using that analogy just because it's a comparison From the standpoint of how common it is for the from the standpoint of how acceptable it is in our society. And if that could be useful in a rough way to compare to here, then it would be the equivalent of everyone taking all their TVs out of their house and burning them in the street. It's a dramatic, culturally dramatic turn here that involved everybody. There would have been very few unbelievers, pagan unbelievers in that city who did not practice the occult. It was part of everyday cultural uh, life in that city. That's 137 years of wages. Multiply your annual salary right now by 137. Even at minimum wage, that's $2 million. By an average wage of a person today, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars worth of books are being burned here. That's, it's unfathomable how much, how much wealth is represented here. That's the reason he mentions it. Unbelievable amount of money. That tells you the scope of it. I mean, no one in that city would have owned a million dollars worth of books. The scope here is with respect to how many. It could have been 50,000 books or somewhere in that neighborhood. Have you ever seen believers willing to give up so much of what the world offers to please the Lord in obedience? This is a remarkable scene. I don't know what compares to it, really. What could we give up on that scale? And heaven knows we probably have plenty of things we could choose from. But who does that? I want to just leave you with this appreciation for what the work of the Spirit has done in this city in the three years Paul is there to create this kind of upheaval. Finally, Luke adds his key marker phrase. You've seen this several times already. I mention it every time we hit it because I talked in the very early stages of the book back in the first night that we would see this marker phrase occur every time there is a new division in the book about to take place. And that is now where we're at. He says, the word of the Lord multiplied and prevailed. Now, the statement is a clear and understandable one on its own. I don't mention it so much to explain it, but to simply make note of the fact that the narrative now is moving into a new phase, into the last phase of the book, in fact, the longest of the sections of this book. This is that buoy in the water that you look for in the book of Acts. Every time this phrase is used, Luke is using it as a way of indicating I'm moving on to a new chapter, so to speak. What sets this section apart from the rest is Paul's singular focus on reaching Rome. Look at verse 21. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he passed through Macedonia and Acacia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. This is sort of an introductory passage for Luke before he gets into the heart of it. Paul receives or perceives this new direction from the Spirit. And specifically, this is what Paul now has come to conclude. He needs to travel from where he sits now in Ephesus. If you have the maps we've handed out here in the past, or if you have one in your Bible, this will be helpful. This next part of the discussion tonight will, will, be, will benefit if you have a, a map handy. Paul has heard the Spirit tell him he needs to go from where he is in Ephesus, which is on the western side of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, near the Aegean Sea. He must now travel through Macedonia, which, if you look on your map, would be the area north of Corinth and Acacia, Greece, in other words, and then through Acacia, eventually is making his way to Jerusalem. By the way, the reason he wants to go to Jerusalem is he's carrying donations from the Gentile church and the Jerusalem church is very poor and it subsisted largely on the donations that the Gentile church provided it. And then ultimately, of course, he wants to travel to Rome. Remember, at the very beginning of this study, I said that the manner of, of narrative here is one of an outward movement from Jerusalem and then further outward and outward and outward. And then Luke orchestrates the telling of this story so that it's clear that the, the last stage of this outward mo- movement is to get to Rome, which was this, the capital of the world. Of the Gentile world. So it moves from the capital of the Jewish world to the capital of the Gentile world. And so you see him making that turn now where Rome will be the focus for the remainder of his of his storytelling. Ironically, and here's where the map comes in. When Paul set this trip in motion, remember it said here in verse 22, he stayed in Asia for a while. So he has this feeling, but he doesn't act on it initially, stays where he is in Ephesus for a while. But when he finally decides it's time now to go and take this trip. By that point, Paul had had a slight change of opinion about how to conduct the trip. His plans had altered just a little bit because according to what he says in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul intended to cross the Aegean Sea directly from Ephesus and hit Corinth first, which is Acacia, then go north into Macedonia, then circle around to the west, and come back down into Asia Minor from the north, and then continue on to Jerusalem. So a clockwise circle, basically, starting in Ephesus, through Acacia, through Macedonia. Paul reasoned that was the better way to go, starting with the boat. He had come to that conclusion. But through a series of events that we'll look at in part in the rest of the book of Acts, he ends up going exactly the way the Spirit directed him to go in the first place. He ends up going counterclockwise. He ends up going to Macedonia, then Acacia, and then back to Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting that what he felt originally was what he carried out ultimately, even if in his own mind he tried to do it a different way? Heavenly Father, we thank you as always. I thank you, Father, that based on the word we can have a greater understanding of how to serve you. I ask, Father, that all the teaching that's taken place in this room over so many months and years even would be working towards some greater purpose in each life that's been touched through the teaching, that we would be a greater soldier in the battle against the enemy, we would be a more diligent ambassador, a more vocal one, that our lives, Father, would give a greater testimony of holiness. Let us have a seriousness and a... And an urgency with respect to these issues, Father, so that study of the Bible is not merely a pastime or a pursuit of knowledge. But like that school in which Paul taught, Father, it would be a schoolmaster, something that would drive us to serve you better. And thank you, Lord, that we've had so long an opportunity to be here doing that. May may it continue as long as you will it. And may it uh, see more numbers added over the days that we teach. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) Oh <laughs> no!